Hey, podcast listeners, it's Joe Pastor, the producer. Are you a fan of our podcast? Well, here's a chance to be part of one of our episodes. We have a podcast episode currently in the works where we plan to delve into process safety professionals' personal stories about why they are passionate about process safety, and we'd love to hear from you. So we want to know, why is process safety important to you? Did learning about a major industry incident impact how you felt about process safety? Or did you or someone you know have a firsthand encounter with a catastrophic event or even a near miss? So what can you do if you'd like to contribute to the episode? You can send us your thoughts via email and we will read them during the episode. Or you can record a short voice message using your phone and send it to podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks and hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. I'm Molly Myers, and thanks for joining us for this session. In this episode, I'm happy to be joined by William McBride. This is actually his second time on our podcast. William was actually our first ever guest speaker back on podcast episode number seven. So welcome back, William. Thank you. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your experience with PSM Mechanical Integrity Inspections? Absolutely. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, so I started in the the chemical industry way back in the the late 90s, early 2000s and migrated into oil and gas in the early 2000s where I started out in operations, worked up through engineering project management, and eventually around 2010-11 era, jumped into PSM, Mechanical Integrity, and worked with a group that I used to be with to help develop a Mechanical Integrity program for both onshore and offshore assets. I spent about eight years working in the Mechanical Integrity world, learning all the different codes and standards and the, you know, the best practices. There are an awful lot of those codes and standards, that's for sure. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So I I spent quite a bit of time, you know, working under PSM and working under mechanical integrity to where eventually around 2018-19 era, I decided to jump ship and come to this side of the desk as a vendor to work with many clients in the industry for oil and gas and and chemical, of course. And so working with them and, and sharing the things that I've learned throughout the years, throughout auditing and, and incident investigations and things of that nature. All right. Well, welcome back. For today's podcast, we're going to be talking about types of inspections that are required for process vessels and tanks, which is Mm -hmm. where your expertise will come in, definitely. So we're going to review some of the information from our prior episode seven at a high level, talking about API 510 inspections. We're not going to rehash all of that, but just a quick overview. And then we're also going to talk about additional types of equipment inspections, including for atmospheric storage tanks, and then some other equipment that doesn't fit so neatly into those ASME Section 8 or API 2000 buckets that sometimes clients have, and they're like, what do we do with these? Because they're not, they don't fit into a clean category. 
And so we're hoping to pick your brain with your expertise and provide our listeners with a little bit of guidance on that. Sounds good. All right. So let's start out with what's involved with inspecting ASME pressure vessels. Yeah, absolutely. So, so good question. So when it comes to inspecting what we call ASME Section 8, Division 1 or Division 2 pressure vessels, typically most of the industry starts with what are your, your federal requirements that they fall under. So we all know OSHA, PSM, or Process Safety Management, but you know the industry is starting to move to understand how critical and safety-wise it is important to inspect these pressure vessels, whether they fall under a required program or not. Exactly. So what you do is you you basically yeah. start with what are they designed from? So we start with the design, which is always your ASME design. And we know mm-hmm. that vessels, if they are designed per ASME Section 8, they are U-stamped. And so when they are U-stamped, that means that typically they have a design pressure above atmosphere. And what the inspection code that we must follow, of course, is API 510, which mm-hmm. we all know kind of falls within the what we would consider an external inspection that shall be performed every five years or half its remaining life per rule based. And then, of course, your, you know, your on stream and internal inspections that should be required every 10 years or half the remaining life per rule based, of course. So, so we've got an external inspection every five years mm-hmm. or half the life and then an internal every 10 years or half the life. So as the vessel gets older, those frequencies may need to speed up. Is that right? It, it all depends on your on-stream inspection and your your ultrasonic testing. So when they when they perform the ultrasonic testing, you know you're running what we consider code pressure team in calculations, which helps determine okay. your corrosion rate and your remaining life of the vessel, okay. which therefore sets your interval frequency. Okay, and those team in is minimum thicknesses of your metal remaining, that's, right? That's correct. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Great. So the ASME pressure vessels is pretty straightforward, driven by the RAGA gap, the recognized and Mm -hmm. generally accepted good engineering practices. And I think most people that are working with ASME pressure vessels kind of realize that that's highly regulated for managing those vessels. Okay. And so then when we get to atmospheric storage tanks, I spent several years working at a refiner and they've got, you know, really large welded storage tanks for oil and gasoline products and so forth. So what type of inspections are required for those kinds of vessels? Yeah. So when we talk about atmospheric storage tanks, there tends to be a little bit of confusion when we look in the industry because when we think storage tank or atmospheric storage tank, most of the industry knows and understands API 653. We all know 653 okay. is your standard inspection procedure for atmospheric storage tanks. When and those we are talk the ones about that the refinery would have had those big correct, correct. tanks. Okay. Yep. Or if you're driving through Cushing, Oklahoma, <laughs> and you see a massive, you know, tank, tank farm, farm all over yep. the place. Yes, those huge tanks, those are designed to what we call API 650 or 620. And okay. those 
big, massive tanks have a very strict inspection program of all different kinds, both internal and external, when we talk about a, an API True 653 inspection. Okay. Now, the confusing part, if, you, if you've ever been by a, a small natural gas processing facility or one of those, you know, those small well sites or metering mm-hmm. facilities out in the field, you see those much smaller tanks. Okay. A lot of times they're referred to as a as a 400 barrel or a 500 barrel tank. They store crude or they store liquids from, okay. from natural gas, such as condensate. Now, those tanks are a little different. They follow under what we call our SPCC program or our spill prevention countermeasures and controls that we have yes. within a facility, which kind of falls more under environmental in a lot of cases. Those right there, small- they're looking to make sure that you don't spill oil and get into the waterways and that type right. of thing. Less right. about a process safety aspect. Correct. And and where we get into some confusion is those tanks are actually manufactured to more of what we would call like an API 12F design versus a 650 design. So a lot of the misconception in the industry is, well, these also fall under a 653 API inspection when that's actually not 100% true. There's some okay. little parts of 653 that you certainly use. But there is a a method of inspection called STI for Steel Tank Institute, SP001. There is a certification and qualification program for that. So when we get to inspecting those small tanks, they tend to fall more under environmental in some cases versus mechanical integrity. So it's funny how the world works. We all work together when it comes to safety Mm -hmm. and when it comes to environmental but because they're considered what we call an atmospheric storage tank, mm-hmm. you tend to get some of that misconception about it being a 650 versus a you know an API 12F. Okay. So okay. I kind of so, like to mention that sometimes. Yeah, so there there's still rag a gap. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. you got to pick the right rag a gap. Just like throughout the whole mechanical integrity element, yep. it's critical to know what rag a gap pertains to your equipment and your specifics. So Correct. Very important. And the key to know why it's so important for a lot of those facilities and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the clientele in the industry who has some of those smaller SVCC mm-hmm. tanks, instead of having that very strict external and internal inspection requirement that comes with 653, SPCC, STI, SB001 allows a much less stringent inspection plan based on what it's sitting in. So what type of containment is it sitting in? What type of leak detection does it have? What type of CRDM does it have? And depending on what it's sitting in and and what type of leak detection you have, some of those things can be simply just leak tested or, or pushed out 20 years Versus wow. having such a strict, you know, five-year, 10-year external internal, such as a 653. So it's it's always important to note to the client that may not understand what STI versus API right. is, you know, having that conversation with them and say, look, you don't necessarily, this is sitting in a concrete berm. It's got proper leak detection. It's considered a class one. I say we we go ahead and push this out you know, mm-hmm. 20 years and, and just do leak testing or, or right. whatever, you know, whatever you would like to do based on what classification course it falls okay. in. So and very important to have those conversations. Yeah. The other thing that I, I presume would factor into those is what they're storing in the storage tank and what the sure. consequences might be if they had a loss of containment, which could come from their PHA. And if they have a significant consequence for a loss of containment, that may 
lead them to a shorter interval for inspection. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's nothing that says that you have to go to the longest inspection window if your risk leads you to think you've got correct. a need to inspect it sooner. Okay, interesting. That's correct. Yep. So now that we've talked about some of those that are a little more typical, let's mm-hmm. delve into some of these other categories. I had a listener ask me recently about what type of inspection would be appropriate for like an open top mixing vessel. It's obviously not a ASME pressure vessel because it's not fully enclosed, yep. but it's still handling hazardous materials. It may have a, a jacket on it for cooling or heating, you know, temp, some sort of temperature control, maybe have a agitator, but it's open for process reasons so that they can see what's going on in the vessel. And yep. she wasn't entirely sure how to go about doing inspections. It was in a PSM covered facility. So she knew that they needed to do some kind of mechanical integrity inspections. What sort of advice would you give clients in that situation? Man, that's a really good question. Yeah, because the way we've always set forth in my inspections is, you know, mechanical integrity, OSHA 1910 subsection J clearly states that you must, you know, use ragged gap and, and use the mm-hmm. codes and standards that we all understand design requires inspection. So we know right. whatever it's designed from, that's what's going to set forth this inspection practice. When we talk about one of these mixing vessels, and I have a little experience in the chemical facility I worked in. It was a polyresin facility. And so we manufactured the resin inside these very mixing things that you're talking about that okay. didn't have agitators. And a lot of them had the cooling or heating coils within side mm-hmm. versus jacketing. When we get asked these questions, because we are in the food industry, we are in, you know, chemical and we are in fertilizer. So when we get asked these questions, there's a few ways to approach this. First off, we ask, you know, what process occurs inside of these things? And are there any historical failures or concerns that you've ever experienced or ever seen? We also know some of these may have the potential to go under VAC. So, um, okay. you know, I, I've heard of, of them sucking up like a Coke can due to, you know, a failure <laughs> in the process. So, you know, okay. based on the based on the, the the issues that these tanks or vessels have seen prior is, is kind of where we start. Have you ever witnessed anything? Have you ever seen anything? Has there ever been a concern for any type of destruction? So that's kind of where we start. So one thing I'd like to point out is that it doesn't have to be that particular facility, if, for instance, they have sister facilities within the same company, they need to look at what experience those other sites have had with similar vessels uh, and similar uses. Uh, That'll give them broader range. Yeah. Yes. That's where you kind of think about that same similar service type situation. Mm -hmm. But yes, absolutely. Those are the questions that we ask. It's more of an informational from our standpoint to know, have you ever seen anything have you ever had any issues or concerns? I know one particular facility I've been to historically had an issue. It had cooling coils on the internal side mm-hmm. and they had to load, you know, heavy chemicals on the internal side. And oh. sometimes if it wasn't at the right process, they could potentially damage one of the coils if it didn't, you know. So we from look at things like impact. that. Okay. Yeah. So we we have those conversations. And then from there, we always recommend a visual examination. 
And that visual examination could have some partnering from an, a 510 type inspection or 653 type inspection. It could kind, you know, or even the 2000. It can kind of come together and use bits and pieces to develop what would, you know, what you would consider a very thorough inspection from a visual standpoint. Okay. And then looking at the appurtenances, looking at everything connected to the tank or vessel, you know, looking at the internal sides, checking for any type of anomalies or concerns from a visual standpoint, mechanically wise. So do you okay. see issues with the coils? Do you see issues with any drain lines or valves that come off the bottom of it, you know, mm -hmm. or, or hatches up top, even all the way up to the flame arresters, which most of these, you know, have a flame arrestor style relief. Okay. So just doing a, a visual examination uh, of everything okay. is kind of where you would typically start. And then mm -hmm. based on any concerns, based on any issues historically, that would kind of set forth your what, what you would consider your frequency of inspection. And okay. this is where being a best practice and, and being an owner user, you would have the ability to set forth. If you've never had an issue with these things, mm -hmm. then put together a five to 10 year, you know, external visual inspection, maybe something, you know, that you would want to do internally every year mm -hmm. by setting a checklist for as the owner user to do sort of an annual okay. visual checklist from operation standpoint. So things like that is typically what we would recommend when we talk about those open top mixing vessels. Okay. So the company would need to look at the application, look at these other ragged gaps for other kinds of tanks and yep. kind of create their own inspection plan for that vessel and write it down as to what their expectations are and then follow that. And then if somebody comes to do an audit, they could show them here's our plan and here's how we've been adhering to that inspection plan. Absolutely. And and the last thing, which you, you kind of hit on earlier when you talked about a sister facility that may have some of the same processing. The other thing we look at is in the industry as a whole, has there mm -hmm. ever been a major failure? Has there ever been a major, you know, has, has the CSB ever issued <laughs> any types of statements around these mixing vessels? We always say we're proactive. We always say safety is number one, and that's very important and very true. But we also know that as an industry, we tend to be a bit reactionary whenever something major happens. Mm -hmm. Something happens in the field. All of a sudden, there's a major investigation. The findings come into play, and then we start building programs around it. So it's very right. important to kind of look out in the industry as well, not just the sister facility, but see, is there something else out there that has happened historically that we want to yeah. kind of monitor and, and keep from happening? Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that the uh, CSB, the Chemical Safety Board, does a lot of incident investigations and provides lots of great investigative reports and videos that are excellent training tools and learning tools so that people don't have to repeat those same catastrophic mistakes. They can learn from others' problems and not have to repeat it. So Absolutely. Uh, great. Okay, so the next piece of equipment that I wanted to talk about briefly is so-called equipment, and I say that with quotes around it, where <laughs> somebody made stuff out of piping components. It might have been like a, a knockout pot for a compressor or a little level pot below a heat exchanger or something like that, where it looks kind of like a little tiny vessel, but it's not made per ASME. It's not stamped or anything like that. But they took like a section of pipe and some pipe caps and some nozzles and just kind of fabricated it themselves. What would you yeah. do with those types of things? 
Man, it, it, it's so funny you ask that question because this this question gets asked a lot. <laughs> and and I always start with what we know as non-board certified states that the equipment okay. is actually. And we know that the majority of the South, which is where a lot of the oil and gas is derived from, a lot of production, we know that these states such as Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana are non-board certified states. Mm-hmm which means that they have the option to actually run specific pressurized equipment that can be non-coded within the facility. So where we typically start, of course, as always, is this is a PSM regulated facility that we're going to perform an inspection on. And I will tell you that we see this everywhere and a lot, and it tends to be more on compression packages, especially older compression Mm -hmm. packages where you've got a lot of the suction bottles or discharge bottles that might be, they're small, they're above the volume size for exclusionary per API 510 NXA. However, they are in a very high pressure service. A lot of these (laughs) compressors, you know, they're upward 1,000, 1,200 PSI. So Mm -hmm. what we look at is first and foremost, okay, we take a look and we realize this isn't a high pressure service. It is an operation. And yes, this does fall in a PSM facility. So how do we inspect it? If we know that it's non-code, meaning that it was not built to section eight, div one or div two design, well, how do you inspect it? Right. Well, we take a, what we consider a common sense and best practice approach to it. I myself, as the owner user for many years, dealt with this a lot. And API 510 does give you a section that talks about what to default to in the event that you have no idea what this thing is made from. If you don't know what materials of construction are whatsoever, you must default. And and everybody knows material-wise, you default to SA283C because we know that's the lowest tensile strength of carbon steel plate that's allowed for pressure vessel design. We typically default to zero corrosion lines and we default to 70% joint efficiency. So everybody knows that. And usually defaults are very conservative. They're very conservative (laughs) and they're very frustrating for the owner user who now realizes that the pressure that he's trying to operate at may not pass any type of pressure team in calculations due to the fact of unknown materials of construction. And it's very frustrating for many, many people still to this day who don't quite understand that. So this is where... I always get into this. It's very important to have a knowledgeable inspection company Mm -hmm. know what they're doing here because it's easy for someone to default that piece of equipment. Let's just say it's a a suction bottle on a compressor skid that's Mm -hmm. operating at a thousand PSI. It is very simple for an inspection company to just default SA283C, 70% joint efficiency, and now the thing has zero life and can't really operate more than about five, 600 PSI. Just just (laughs) throwing a random number out there. Yep. So with that being said, it's important to know, okay, let's look at this. This vessel's made from a piping component. We know that because there's no long seam. It was not a carbon steel plate that was rolled. Rolled, It was milled, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's piped. So we know that. It's seamless. As well as the heads. Now, the heads could be SA-283C because they could be a rolled plate material or it could be a pipe cap. Really doesn't know unless it's marked. So, you know, either way, it's seamless as well. So it's very, very, very important to have conversations with a knowledgeable inspection company that will use a common sense approach when it comes to these. So understanding that it's pipe, we know that pipe SA53B is the lowest tensile strength of pipe that's going to be used for any type of Section 8 design or non. 
So we can say that the shell of the vessel is actually SA-53B and not 283C, and you can make the case because we know SA-283C is a plate and would have to be rolled and welded. Mm -hmm. So when you know it's seamless, you can make the determination for a pipe material defaulted versus a shell material default to give you a much, you know, a much higher stress, level stress value. And the fact that it's seamless and that the heads are seamless, it tells you right in 510 for seamless, you can default to 85% joint efficiency. So now you've got a much higher stress allowance and you have a higher joint efficiency. So by Mm -hmm. using that common practice when performing pressure teaming calculations, you can have a much higher maximum allowable working pressure on said vessel. Now, in our industry, I will say, speaking for the client side, there are some people out there that say, you know what, this is a non-code vessel, so we're going to exclude it from the MI program Mm -hmm. altogether. And some people are like, you know what, this isn't highly hazardous service. (laughs) It is what it is. We're going to keep it. And whatever we can get from it, if we can keep it at the pressure it's operating at, great. We'll put it on its routine inspection plan and treat it as a U-stamped vessel, or Mm -hmm. if it doesn't pass, then we'll look at replacing it at that point. Right. So that's typically the approach. It gets into your risk level and what your consequences might be. And that could come from your PHAs, understanding what your risk potential is for that so-called vessel. And that may guide you as well. Okay, great. So one other category I wanted to talk about is vessels that were built to ASME code for either quality control or just uh, standardization or whatever, but they've chosen not to stamp them. So they mm-hmm. may be operating them as like a, a storage tank, essentially an atmospheric or maybe two or three PSI. So they fit under the 15 PSI G threshold for ASME pressure vessels. So how do you approach those, even though they're built to code, but they're not stamped? That's a that, that's a funny but great question, because what, what's so funny by this is I can't tell you how often in our industry those said vessels are referred to as a quote unquote storage tank. And so <laughs> so when yep. you when you hear somebody call you and say, OK, hey, we have a storage tank that may be storing lube oil or something like right. that in it. Hey, we need you to come out and perform an inspection. So in your mind you're set ready to perform a 653 or an SB001 when in mm-hmm. actuality you get out there and all of a sudden it's a horizontal looking vessel right. that that's sitting and you're like oh crap what what's going on here you know we have a this is not a storage tank <laughs> so it, it very much similar to what I was referring to earlier we do use parts of what would be API 510 now granted It would be nice to know having any design information that Mm -hmm. states that it was fabricated that ASME code, but not stamped. It's always nice to have that to know, yeah, this was built to Section 8, but it wasn't stamped because it was rated for atmospheric. Right. And Um, sometimes that would be on the vendor drawings. Correct. If you have those. Yes. And and a lot of times, if you don't, then once again, you have to assume. But we sort of treat them exactly the same thing, because in all fairness, anyone to use SA-283C, you know, 70% joint efficiency, no corrosion lines. If you go to attempt to run a pressure team in calc using, Mm -hmm. you know, 14, 13 PSI, 
more than none, it's always going to show a passing. It's always going to show a minimum required thickness that's lower than nominal. It would, of course, be a, a case-by-case situation. Mm-hmm. What is it storing? What's in it? Like you mentioned earlier, the risk levels that are associated to it. What's there? And then, again, we always ask, has there been any type of failure? I mean, it's not under pressure, so you don't have to worry about anything blowing out, but has it leaked? Is the substance on the internal side Mm -hmm. have specific damage mechanisms that is eating through the steel, such as, you know, MIC or microbial induced corrosion? Right. So depending on what is inside of it, and also, again, is this within a regulated facility or not? More than not, we tend to see these in non-regulated facilities, but the client wants to go above and beyond and make sure that it's captured in part of their SPCC plan. So we sort of treat it with an API 510 style inspection, not quite as stringent. So we work with the best practice with the clients as well to make sure that we establish based on history, based on any concerns in the industry and and making sure that we set forth the best inspection program that isn't as stringent. So if we need to, you know, keep it just every five years or or whatnot, we can certainly work with the person and do it. But that's typically how we approach those. Okay. So all of these, it's important for the company, the owners to work with their inspector to understand what the application is, what the risks are, what similar ragagap might apply that you might pull from, and then create their own custom plan to implement absolutely. For these. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Because I mean It's very important. You know, we all understand PSM and DOT requirements, you know, EPA. We all understand that in the world that we're in, you're going to have, you know, some requirements, yes Mm -hmm. or no. But at the end of the day, all of the codes and standards and the recommended practices that we use for inspections, if you read in the early parts of those codes and standards in the definition section, you'll see that there are responsibilities. There's responsibilities by the inspector. There's responsibilities by the owner user. There's responsibilities by the owner engineering group. There's responsibilities of all parties. So it's important to work together to set forth the best practice based on historical, because at the end of the day, safety is number one. And we want to make certain that all of these equipment items and piping do operate in the safest manner possible, because we all want to go home to see our family. (laughs) Exactly. That is right on the nose. All right. So is there any other inspection issues that we need to cover before we wrap up here? One thing I've been in conversations with, with organizations, people know, you know, FEMSA DOT has issued what's called the mega rule on the pipeline side. Well, what a lot of people don't know is also that there was also a an API called an API 1173 that was issued a few years back that that's not, of course, mandatory. It's totally voluntary. But what that has started doing is it has started driving non-PSM regulated inspection plans for facilities such as a small compressor station or a small metering facility or a small well site. A lot of the industry has always known that anytime something is issued such as this, where it's totally voluntary and not mandatory, we all know that within the industry, (laughs) one more major issue or incident to occur, now all of a sudden it is going to be mandated. We, We all know this. So what a lot of organizations have started doing is looking outside of the regulated facilities to start looking at what what do they have out there? Do we have, mm-hmm. you know, on let's just for an example, a natural gas sour system 
you know, where you're, you're pulling in a high concentrated amount of H2S within a gas stream that's coming out of the ground and it's traveling to a sulfur recovery facility. Well, although some of these small sites where all that is traveling through may be non-regulated, we understand what could occur mm -hmm. and how detrimental it could be if there was a leak. So a lot of organizations are actually looking outside of PSM regulated facilities to see what they have and starting to set up inspection plans. Over the last two or three years, I've been a part of some of these groups that are actually looking outside of their right. PSM regulated facilities. So it's important to, to know what you have in your system. It's important to at least take a look at it and mm -hmm. see if there's anything out there of concern. Right. One thing that we've talked about in some prior podcasts along that line is that EPA has a general duty clause. OSHA has one as well, but EPA has some very specific language in there that indicates if you are handling hazardous materials and it's not very well defined, so it gives them a lot of leeway, then you are required to do certain activities which look an awful lot like a PSM or RMP program. There mm -hmm. are few exceptions, but it still requires a lot of the same activities, including mechanical integrity inspections. And so, especially out in the East Coast, and I suspect some other areas as well, the EPA has been citing facilities for non-compliance with that general duty clause under that requirement. So, even if you think you aren't PSM covered, if you're flying under that threshold quantity and so forth, but you've got something that could be hazardous, don't forget that you could get caught under that EPA general duty clause. So it is in your best yep. interest from a risk standpoint and a regulatory standpoint to consider that. Absolutely. All right. Well, great. I appreciate your assistance, William, in helping our listeners learn a lot more about mechanical integrity inspection requirements. If you have a comment about this week's episode, an idea for a future episode, or a question about anything process safety related, we'd love to hear from you. That's one of the tips that got us set on this particular podcast was a question from a listener. So by all means, let us know. Send us a voicemail using our link in the episode description or shoot us an email at podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. And William, could you tell listeners how they can contact you if they have further questions on mechanical integrity? Absolutely. You can contact me directly at area code 903-374-5806, or you can shoot me an email at wmcbride at excel, spelled X-C-E-L, G as in Gary, R as in Roger, P as in Paul.com. All right. Thank you. And Joe will make sure that the contact information is in our episode notes. For additional information on mechanical integrity, you can check out our initial podcast, episode one, which was an introduction to mechanical integrity and RAGA gap. Also, episode seven that featured William McBride as well. There's also a back to basics if you want to just get some very introductory information on mechanical integrity. Our back to basics part six episode would be good to try. And finally, our goal at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems, as it is our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like fires, explosions, and toxic releases. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help guide you on your process safety journey. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be safe out there. 
We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.